0: Welcome to Human First, my name is David Tilston and this podcast explores the methods, habits and processes which allow us to excel as human beings. My aim is to utilise the experience and knowledge of experts from a wide range of different fields and to translate these into easy to follow principles that can be adopted by you to improve your life and those around you. To kick off season two, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Steve James to the podcast. During this episode, we will discuss the reasons that got him into medicine, life on the COVID war during the pandemic, the variations in statistics, what health really is, and many strategies that can be utilized to live better. Points have been openly discussed in this episode to provide transparency so that we can learn from the past and navigate the road ahead together. Thank you in advance for listening. Let's get into it. Dr. Steve James, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, David, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure and an honour to have you as as part of this, especially especially as I've followed your work um, over the last six months. Um, well, we're going to dive into how that came about, and I think for a lot of people, you were pushed into the public eye very quickly, maybe unexpectedly for yourself, but your viewpoint definitely caused a shift in my mind during the whole pandemic, and I think. That helped a lot of people, especially people that had a slightly different viewpoint or even just those that had a very open mind Mm. and wanted to see both sides of the spectrum. So I'll start by thanking you for being honest, truthful in yourself, uh, because that was something that I didn't witness as much during the last few years. But when you spoke openly on television, which we can go into, it just felt like a breath of fresh air. It felt like common sense was coming through. And, and we needed that, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. It was strange that uh, my, my voice made a difference because my voice wasn't particularly special. Um, I think a lot of people would say the same thing.
0: It's, um, But I, I think every voice, I think every every human being w- is important. We, we tend to put people on this hierarchy or pedestal because of the position they hold in society. But we know that most of this is a facade or it's just how society works and the culture but mm-hmm. every human being's voice is important and right place right time can sometimes be all that we need just to stimulate this butterfly
1: effect almost absolutely and there's this uh process where you see that um the people whose voices are heard and are impactful are not actually different from anyone else's voices it's really that they've had the confidence and the opportunity to speak out. Um, and, but actually, most people would have something quite considerable to contribute um, uh, if they if they were to sort of see. That's why I always thought that somehow you need some, some extra qualification or special experience in order to speak out on television or radio. And, okay, you know, I have, didn't have media training beforehand. I probably got media training on the job. Um, but, uh, you can do it, you can, you can just do it and, you know, talking sensibly about what you've thought about for, for, for 20 years or so, um, makes, uh, quite a, quite a contribution.
0: I totally agree. And I think a lot of the separation, the disparity on a personal level and as a culture in the last few years has come from that saying what you think, what you say and what you do should be in line in order to build this sort of harmonious balance in, in yourself really because if one of those is out of kink maybe you think something you're scared to say something or act on it then that causes this disease in the body and when these are in line then things start to come into play and i think when certain things have played out over the last few years when you have heard a voice that has mimicked your thought process you've gone do you know what that's it that's it i needed to hear this because i'm not alone this is not just how i feel Hmm. so Community is a huge thing, in my opinion, as well.
1: I think a lot of people are looking for balance on the outside. Um, You know, we talk about work-life balance and, you know, other other sort of approaches to balance, but your outer is going to reflect the inner. And if you work on the inner, you'll be able to then rearrange things on the outside. And I felt, um, particularly in the hours after I had my kind of fairly renowned chat, Um, that the outer world was somehow shifting back to now more closely aligned with where I was as a person. Um, so, you know, the contacts I had and developed my ability to interact in the world, there was a big shift in my, um, my connection field or whatever term you want to use, mandala. Um, and, uh, yeah, since then I'm, I'm starting to do more of what I feel is the right thing for me.
0: It's interesting as well. When I teach a class or I'm coaching a former session, regardless of the amount of people in the class, I always say, make sure you you ask a question because I guarantee that someone in the class is feeling the same way, but they're just scared to say something. Yeah, And I feel that that was amplified. That was happening on a national or European or worldwide level over the last two years. And I mainly think that's really happened because of the, people were seeing things happen personally, and also witnessing things happen in certain uh, amounts of data, which we'll definitely get into at some point. They were coming out, but then it didn't make sense. The narrative was always the same, but data was saying something different if people were really looking into it. I think if a certain narrative was always followed, like do this because this is the number that we should be looking at, but then people looking at papers and, and other things and thinking, hold on a sec, that number seems a little bit different. Why is that different? And that creates this. This question and something I've put at the top of one of my notes for this podcast is question everything, because it's something that my teachers have always told me: question yourself daily, question other people daily. And then I heard you say it on a previous podcast as well. And yeah, it's really important to challenge these beliefs.
1: I, I learned about something called um, cardio exercise testing uh, many years ago when I did research. You know, it's a VO two max test. And um, I went to the US and no, it was in, in Europe and met uh, Professor Carl um, Wasserman, who was the sort of leading expert on it and wrote the textbook. And um, when I first saw him, uh, he's a sort of in his 90s and uh, I couldn't quite hear what he was saying when he came up to give some comments. And I was, you know, w- wondering how, how sharp he, he really was still. And then the next day, he gave a lecture himself. And he was just such a crystal clear mind and was able to sort of track back and say why this opinion had diverged from that and actually what the situation was before in 19, and it was just marvellous. And I went up to him afterwards and took a copy of his textbook and said, could you write a little something in the front of it? And he wrote, question everything, who, when, where, why, what, why. Mm. And uh, it stuck with me
0: good point we had uh we had a martial arts seminar the weekend so three day three day event and we've had people that haven't trained with our close group um so my teacher sort of heads up the the association and people go off from different parts of the world but obviously because the pandemic we haven't got together and they all came back and they went hold on a second this is different to what you taught us three years ago and my teacher angelo said i oh, know because it was wrong and i've changed it and i thought I've always thought that as a teacher I've always it's inspired me to to follow people like that because I understand that if they've got that mindset they're in a growth mindset they're not in a static stagnant mindset which I mean we could even relate it back to the whole conversation around science says this <laughs> it's like everything is designed to evolve if it's based on philosophy fundamentally a lot of sciences um, as well and viewpoints because it's always filtered by that membrane like you said it's an internal perspective on an external stimulus and somehow that goes through a filter so there's always human error to some degree even if it's at a very small level obviously the bigger yeah. the sample size the less error that should be but sometimes there's not if um there's certain how do you say invested interest that need to be met so i, I think it's important to question that and, and definitely ourselves because we tend to pick biases and I've even questioned myself over the last two years like okay this is my viewpoint this is what I chose to do does it mean that that's the correct probably not there's mm-hmm. probably probably a spectrum of, of rights and wrongs
1: yeah I mean there, there's always the deciding for oneself the individual versus the population um but, you know, if you have the motivation to learn and you're willing to adjust your path and readjust when you recognize you've made a mistake, you're going to be going in the right direction for yourself personally. Um, you talked about growth mindset and Carol's work's, uh, work on that is very interesting. Um, she talks a lot about, you know, developing a culture with your kids, for example, where they learn to see a mistake as a good thing. Um, so at one point I was talking to my kids after school and say, you know, did anyone make any mistakes today at school? Did you find out you had any problems? And, and one day my sons looked back and said, yeah, I made a really juicy mistake today. (laughs) And I was just like, yes, you know, when you can kind of, I mean, it was probably just echoing dad's wishes and, you know, saying something that he knows his dad would be happy with. Um, but the concept that ah you know, a mistake is really an indication of an improvement in understanding um, mm-hmm. rather than a failure. Uh, it's very important. Um, there's also, do you know this book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me? It's a book about cognitive dissonance. A uh, wonderful book. Um, it goes through weapons of mass destruction and a lot of other sort of political um, uh, scenarios that we've been in in society where politicians basically convince themselves despite the data being presented to them to show that the situation is different. They have to hang on to their initial belief uh, because it's so internally challenging for you as a leader to have been saying one thing for such a long time. And if you've got too much ego involved, you can't like your martial arts teacher. You can't, if you're too egotistical, put your hand up and say, I was wrong, and this is what we need to do. And We've got a culture politically uh, in the UK and most other westernised countries that doesn't support politicians making mistakes and putting their hand up and saying, I need need to change course. Um, But that's a process that's known as cognitive dissonance, and and that's what's been going on, I think, to a fairly large extent. I'm not saying it's all cognitive dissonance, um, but there's a, a large part of that that's been going on
0: that was my next question is that it was going to be around do you think the culture basically makes makes it really hard to to change your mind because it's it's almost like we're, we're ingrained in this because of social media as well you see a memory flash up from 10 years ago on whatever platform you're using and then people almost see that it's like the the emotional response to that hormonal response to that is almost like you're reliving that exact time it's just like a memory how it replays in the body is is mimicked as if it was happening at that time and it's probably incorrect because i remember hearing a stat ages ago there's something like one in two memories are are incorrect that everything we think and as time goes on it gets even more incorrect because we fill in the gaps with negatives as a primordial response to threat So we're always making the scenario worse and worse and worse. But if we actually went back and relived it, which we can't because we're effectively taking a modern mind, whether we are say 40 years of age and we go back and remember something at 15 or 20, it's hard to comprehend something because the knowledge you have now is very different to how you did at that time. Mm. So you end up trying to comprehend something with a future mindset. And then you end up second-guessing things and questioning things. And I think in our culture, because so many people are told that mistakes were wrong and you're going to get told off if you made a mistake back then, even if you learn from it and you've inspired 20,000 people because of your mistake, it becomes this, it makes people scared, makes people scared to commit.
1: People get cancelled for for a comment they made 20 years ago and it's not okay to say, sorry, It's not. it's not enough. I mean, this idea that we everything now is wrong, or everything you did in the past is is wrong. If at that time it doesn't matter whether at that time it was socially acceptable, uh, if it's now not socially acceptable, you were wrong then and can't go back to being right. I mean, this is this is nonsense. Culture can't can't live in that kind of environment.
0: One of the notes I've got on here is saying about like how did being a parent affect you over the last two years, but. We'll definitely get into that. What I wanted to get into uh, originally, Steve, as well, is just understanding who you are, like what got you into becoming a doctor? And because you're always referred to as this is Steve James, a doctor, and this is what you've done now. I want to know the life before that, what, what got you into this and, and what sort of led you into like a holistic approach
1: as well? Okay. So um, I grew up in, in Devon, um, fairly sort of standard family setup, I suppose. Um, my mum was a little different in that she took me to a homeopath when I was seven years old. Um, I did an elimination diet when I think I was 12 or 14. Uh, worked out, I had quite strong uh, allergies to house dust mite and grass and pollen and things like that. Uh, back then, she was very much into a whole food diet. And at one point, I thought I was going to train to be a homeopath. Um, I then forgot all about that and at about 17, I was going to apply to uni and was going to do engineering based on the sort of subjects I'd done at at school and suddenly thought to myself, you know, actually, I don't want to spend the rest of my life doing just pure science. I wanted something that was more connected to people. So I switched into medicine, you know, just, you know, a week or two before I wrote my application for the uni. Um, I then had a year off and uh, lived in Japan and met a Buddhist teacher. Uh, who was Danish uh, in, a, um, in Tokyo through some people i got drunk with in a youth hostel. Um, <laughs> and um, met him and was t- clearly very connected to the teachings he was giving and to him as a person uh, from the beginning. And uh, I then invited him to the UK uh, a year later. He wasn't teaching at that time in the UK and uh, set up a a Buddhist meditation group at university Um, so that was at Cambridge in 94 and that was a time where when you told people you were interested in meditation they looked at you in a very strange way Um, (laughs) and I think that yeah that wasn't the easiest environment to sort of uh, juggle uh, you know I didn't want to be drinking alcohol and to be on all the other sort of uh, drugs and stimulants that people were using um, but I didn't have the right kind of social network there to to not do so in, as well so lots of, lots of learning points at that time but um, I took a, over my sort of medical training uh, both medical school and then when I uh, moved down to London I took a lot of breaks so I would work for six months and have three months off and work for a year and have another six months off And then in that time I would travel with my Buddhist teacher and I started lecturing on Buddhism in 2000. Um, And I've traveled and taught Buddhism in, I don't know, 20 countries Um, and helped set up a Buddhist meditation charity uh, with friends in the UK. And we uh, fundraised and uh, purchased an old school in Kennington and uh, turned that into a, a Buddhist meditation center. So I was quite busy with those things and starting to have children. And my medical career just sort of developed quite nicely along the side. Um, I did some research on cardiopulmonary exercise testing and looked into risk uh, assessment before major surgery. Uh, That got me more comfortable with, uh, I wouldn't say sort of the high-level statistics, but the uh, balance of of risk and uh, the ability to sort of work between intuition and sort of the assessment of the overall patient um, rather than being too narrow uh, on a certain parameter. Um, And I developed an interest in what's called perioperative uh, medicine, so uh, how to optimize Cardiac output and um, flow, blood pressure uh, during anesthesia, uh, echocardiography, uh, brain monitoring, cerebral oxygenation, uh, these kinds of systems to sort of try and look after uh, the sickest patients for the most complicated kind of surgeries. Um, I was sort of always pushing myself to, um, you know, try and do the more complex things, I suppose. But I also set up a exercise intolerance clinic. So although I'd come from a sort of uh, anesthesia uh, and therefore sort of surgical patient background, um, I found that very few uh, uh, colleagues were comfortable with the whole physiology of an exercise test. Um, So the cardiologists aren't happy with the respiratory patterns and the respiratory physicians not happy with the heart function analysis. And neither group is really looking at the autonomic nervous system control. Uh, And then there's the metabolic side of health, uh, which you can see in particular with patients with chronic fatigue syndrome uh, on a cardiopromic exercise test. And so I got asked by a a colleague to set up a clinic uh, looking at uh, the diagnosis of uh, fatigue and breathlessness uh, using the cardiopromic exercise test. So that then, put me in a position where I could start to understand the physiology of why people were breathless, um, but didn't leave me at that stage with any tools for helping people. So for example, I'd see people who were presenting as as tired and and breathless, and they'd had some investigation for their heart because they'd presented one night with some chest pain. And since they'd had that, they were more worried about exercise, they'd put weight on. um, But you start on an exercise bike and, and their heart and lung function was perfect. So then you've got to say, okay, what's going on behind that? So if, if the ability to deliver and utilize oxygen is good, that's not what's making you tired. Yeah. So I then asked this lady a sleep history and she was in her 70s working full time and sleeping about five and a half hours a night because she liked to spend a couple of hours drinking wine and watching uh, movies in the evening with her husband. Um, so, you know, I, I I found the sort of chase towards or the investigation of of what's going on behind, um, to be very interesting. So, uh, I studied um, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia and attended some sleep clinics and was hoping to to spend more time. Uh, I actually have to take take a post as a sleep consultant. Maybe that'll still happen one day. Who knows? But I thought sleep was quite fascinating. I'd always had this sort of background in exercise physiology. Um, I worked with, uh, a consultant called Nick Gould, who specializes in patients with POTS, which is a autonomic nervous system dysfunction. So exercise tested quite a few hundred of his patients um, and looked at the patterns and how our autonomic nervous system gets disturbed uh, with both our breathing patterns and with heart rate. Um, looked into the chronic fatigue group and found that you could pretty much diagnose chronic fatigue syndrome from a cardiopulmonary exercise test. Uh, because they have a lot of heart and lung function reserved, but their metabolic system gets stressed much more quickly than, than you'd expect to see in other individuals. Um, I did some courses on uh, functional medicine um, with the Institute of Functional Medicine uh, about gut health and a number of other sort of nutrition courses. Um, what else? Well, I'd always taught um, meditation. Um, I've done some training now in breath work. Um, that's certainly a, a very um, functional tool for helping people to relax, to go into their emotions, um, to calm their nervous system. Uh, you know, I've dabbled with cold and heat exposure. And, you know, put myself through and various patients through ketogenic diets and elimination diets and low carb and um, FODMAP and and these sorts of things. Uh, I'm training this year uh, in psychotherapy with Gabba Mate who's a uh, physician from Canada uh, who specializes in addiction and palliative care but now works sort of on a trauma-informed um, basis. Uh, I've become quite aware of Stephen Porges' work on uh, polyvagal theory and sort of understanding this difference between rest and digest, fight or flight and um, freeze or fawn states and uh, while it's, I, w- I would say it's a theory. We don't really have good evidence that our brain is switching between these modes. Um, it's certainly functionally as a model that helps people to understand uh, life and the changes they need to make. Um, I've done some courses on fasting and, and worked on that. Um, so I was just sort of essentially looking for e- every modality there was out there um, that wasn't taught in medical school but was relevant. Um, you know, hyper- managing blood sugar control um, uh, and the impact of hyper-insulinemia, uh as a starting point for, for metabolic disease or metabolic syndrome. So i had been looking at all these different uh, angles and approaches um, and started to see, you know, and use these with, with, with patients. Um, I was very fortunate with the clinic because I had an hour with each patient. And that allows you to take the history, establish a relationship uh, and start to um, build changes going forwards.
0: Okay, that is a lot (laughs) to unpack. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, so the first point would be around uh, Buddhism. So uh, I've I've mentioned this on the podcast about once or twice the previous 20 episodes. Someone who I believe that Pretty much saved my my life in terms of, I was doing long hours, highly stressed, and was on the motorway. And I was listening to Alan Watts, and uh, for anyone that doesn't know, uh, Zen Buddhism, and he's um he's not here anymore, but incredible words, and they just transformed my whole um, perspective on life. And and I listened to hours of him. I literally was the only thing I listened to mm-hmm. in the car for about two years, and. I think it's very profound, and the more I learned, I, I spent time in Thailand, um, so I lived there for a while and looked into sort of yoga philosophy as a whole or yoga as a system as a whole. And there were definitely a lot of correlations uh, between the, the two, and probably even more so between sort of Buddhism as a whole than something like more like Christianity or others. But I've even found correlations amongst other religions as well. It seems to be this common thread that runs through them. It depends. Again, what perspective or what aperture you're looking in from, I think that's all looking out from. So one of the questions I had for you is, (laughs) I was going to say, have these helped Mm -hmm. you in your current role? But what I didn't expect was how long the list was. Because what it's made me really realize is what a good friend of mine who works in the emergency department, and I I coach a couple of doctors from a movement perspective, and they've all said, we don't do any of this. (laughs) It was all very driven towards this is how it is and this is the potential outcome or this is the medical intervention you're going to provide for this. But as I've learned over the years, it's like you're going into mitochondria and uh, like the function of mitochondria and how that affects the body and things like ME I've heard thrown out so many times, but to me, it always seemed like a bit of a cop-out without being disrespectful, but it always felt like a, a blanket way of saying, we don't know what's going on. We just know you get tired instead of going, Hmm, What's the root cause? Let's start chipping away at these things. Let's start changing the way you breathe. Let's move towards uh, nasal breathing instead of mouth breathing. Let's just start there. Let's start with walking every day. Let's get some bare feet on the earth, go outside more, stop watching Netflix at night and having a glass of wine before bed, and let's get eight hours sleep. And the differences are profound through implementing these simple techniques. So I was going to say, how has it impacted your current work doing all of those things?
1: So... uh... You know, I, I do a couple of different roles. So one is I'm a, currently a critical care uh, physician um, looking after a general critical care ward either at King's College Hospital or um, at the Princess Royal um, in Orpington. And that's um, where it helps me there. I would say uh, I'm quite focused on sort of the rehabilitation side sometimes of patients. Uh, so uh, getting patients over towards the light, getting them outside. Um, uh, thinking about how to stimulate their recovery. Um, uh, I'm quite interested in the approach to family uh, when you've got a, a dying patient or a question about withdrawal or uh, significant um, neurological damage. And, you know, it's, it's a real challenge for me as a human being to uh, create... The space, you know, a safe space without wanting to use the term that's used in, in some strange ways, but create a safe space for that family to be able to experience what the unpleasantness of the situation is with a view that they are going to then less have the grief bottled up later on, uh, which is very, very common. And um, so Quite a lot of patients who've got unexplained restlessness have got a significant history of uh, uh, unresolved grief. Um, so I nearly always ask people about, you know, one of my favorite questions is, when were you last well? And um, quite a lot of patients come back with the year, what happened, and why they don't want to talk about it. Um, and that kind of, you know, it kind of writes the prescription in some ways. Um so yeah, I'd say that side, you know i'm I've been very fortunate with uh, the hospital I'm at, um a uh, fantastic group of colleagues uh, who uh, I probably challenged uh, more than they asked for. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I didn't ask to be a representative of the department um uh, but because you know my name and job title came up again and again. Uh, you know I appeared to many like I was. Trying to represent a critical care uh, physician's point of view, but I wasn't. I was just representing myself, uh, and uh, by doing that, I was representing the voices of many other non-physicians who, who weren't being heard. Um, but uh, you know, that's that's my sort of uh, standard job, so to speak. But uh, all these other aspects of what I tend to do and work with with other patients and um, one-to-one uh, sessions uh, or with um, the retreats that we're starting to run. And um, we've now also set up an online health community. So that's called Health Awakening, um, health, health-awakening.com if anyone wants to find it. Uh, at the moment, we've got about 90 people on board that. Uh, and that's to help people to support their own transitions, health journeys. Um, they get support through the interaction from one person to another about what, what they're trying to do and how they're trying to change or, you know, I've just started cooking this and, and I have got any ideas about I'm bored with breakfast ideas, who can come up with something good um, or someone isn't feeling well at the moment or has had some useful experiences so they're sharing on, on that basis with a group of people who they know they can trust and they're going to basically support them and not think they're crazy because they've decided to try something else. Yeah. Then we provide um, yoga classes, meditation classes, breathwork classes, food classes that are all streamed uh, for people to take part in. Uh, then I do a, like a weekly health Q&A and we move through different topics. So this month we've been looking at protein and muscle and getting people to start to calculate their protein intake uh, per day And, um, you know, you're smiling very, very knowingly there. I would say, hmm, uh, I can can recall one patient who came to the fatigue clinic uh, who had a very appropriate um, protein intake, the rest were all deficient. And that lady was a trained nutritionist. Um, So no one I'd ever met in clinic uh, was... Uh, getting enough protein and certainly not getting enough protein to heal uh, from the deficits they've been through. Um, so that's a very important topic to, to get people familiar with. Um, and then we're doing something called health resets. So uh, every quarter, we're going to run a program for a month. So it's going to be starting in July. And uh, we'll sort of try to vary it each time. But essentially, we come across those those four topics I mentioned earlier. So nutrition, Exercise and movement, uh, stress and connection, and and, uh, your sleep wake cycle. Um, So, we did a sort of mini version uh, in May where people sort of, you know, tried to set a daily rhythm a bit more clearly, get more light exposure early in the morning. Um, I put people onto a kind of animal based um, protein and fruit diet, so a fairly simple elimination plan, not putting them into a low carb or ketogenic state because a little more complicated to manage uh, for for a whole group, Um, but really reducing down the irritants and pushing up the nutrients. Um, And a lot of people found that, you know, big impactful changes, uh, getting people to try cold showers um, and talk about it to each other and share their kind of fears of what what it is and what they can manage and not manage. So it's been really interesting sort of building that up. So um, in the next months, I hope to sort of spend more time um, building that side of what I do, uh, I really think there's a lot to be gained by um, people becoming independently resilient and not dependent and able to uh, understand that they are responsible for their own health and that they shouldn't need to look towards government messaging which is not about developing their health. Um, so it's my little idea that over time, i will probably grow into a group that can also campaign. Um, who, people who will stand up in their own community and say, "You know, this is this is nonsense, or we shouldn't be doing this, or shouldn't be doing that." So, uh, I, I hope it'll have uh, support on many levels.
0: I think, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's incredible. Funny enough, we, we did a course during the pandemic as well, which <laughs> actually addressed. We, we didn't go into the food aspects. We realised how um it can be quite simple but you find that we we wanted to um at the time just include as many people as possible so we thought that by removing the food barrier we'd remove um potential dogma from the scenario so it was just one less barrier for people to come in and that was focused around like you said like cold showers in the morning or cold dunks i purchased a bin that i sat in every morning for two years outside the front door (laughs) um i thought this is what it's come to but i really thought. Let's make, I'll make myself as resilient as possible. And then the idea is as a team all um, ex service, when we decided to impart that knowledge on others and just say, look, here's a local challenge and just come and get involved. And like you said, these, these simple changes of five minutes movement, five minutes times out of, or five, 10 minutes outdoors, a little bit of cold, a little bit of challenge really changed people's mindset. And it started to make them, these epiphany bridges started to appear between, okay, if I make myself more resilient. I'm not getting sick anymore. Like I haven't had a cold in a year now. This is yeah. this is interesting. Where I was sick twice a month, and the big shift. I mean, I've seen it myself. As animal produce has gone up, grass fed, grass finished, locally sourced. Again, if we if we go into the environmental standpoint, which is a whole new conversation, but if we're sourcing things from that perspective, we're getting the best environmental um, methodology in terms of if you really want to help the planet, and equally, we're getting the best type of food. And we're supporting our local community. And I think that's so important. And one of the questions I had for you as well is working on a COVID ward, did it mimic what you've just said to me in terms of like your work, um, whether it was in the COVID ward or outside over the time as a doctor, did you find that people were just lacking uh, things like nutrient density, um, time outdoors, and this term healthy, I think that's something that's been bounded around way too much because if you really dive into people's blood's gut biome lifestyle habits, you see a very different picture. you might find a parasite doing its its work or something that's heavily taxing the system, and on the surface they're in great shape they've got the body they're on paper they they're doing all these things in the gym, but the body's under so much strain and stress that it doesn't yeah. compute so yeah, my question is did you see anyone that was healthy and are there particular habits or yeah, lifestyle habits that maybe weren't in place that you think could have been added to improve the, the words I've used are reduce the amplitude or magnitude of the pandemic.
1: Okay. So that's a big topic. So um, there was a study out of the U S saying that 88% of adults in the U S are not metabolically healthy. Um, They've got some degree of hyperinsulinemia or hypertension or obesity, um, abnormal cholesterol profiles. Um, So, and out of that 12% that's left, you'd probably suspect that some were malnourished or overly stressed with their physical workload, which leaves a, a vanishingly small percentage of people who are genuinely healthy. Um, our, our body's set up to respond to stimuli and, and change? Um, the reason the muscle gets stronger is because you actually rip muscle fibers and that leads to a release of myokines and other uh, inflammatory markers that tell the body to build the muscle um, uh, in this area so you go back and repair, but you repair stronger and you build stronger um, and our, our body. Response. so the more you ask it to do something the better it becomes at doing that sort of thing so if you're if you're older and you want to keep your brain active uh, it's not enough to do a sudoku once a week you need to go off and start to learn a new language or learn to dance or or take up a new copy or craft where you're you actually go through a phase of oh i can't do this uh, this is difficult yeah and that sort of state is driving um, uh, brain-derived uh, neurotrophic factor release and other, other sort of chemicals into your body, which is supporting uh, neurogenesis and, and the plasticity in your brain, which you need to be able to then keep firing on, on all cylinders. So, um, you know, being healthy is not defined by not having a medical diagnosis. Um, and when we even talk about people who've had uh, COVID without any other comorbidities, um, that in itself doesn't say that they were people who are healthy. Um, so I would say that, in my experience in intensive care, there was not a single patient who came through who didn't have another identifiable comorbidity. Uh, the vast majority of them had most mul- multiple ones. Um, occasionally, I would hear uh, a, a junior present a patient and say they've got no significant of medical history, but when you digged into it, there was um, diverticular um, disease. There was uh, level of obesity that hadn't been noticed. Um, you know, it, you know, to 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 have an increased uh, visceral fat mass and you know a, a dad belly is for me, definitely not healthy. It may not qualify you for a diagnosis, um, but it, it's not your, your body being uh, primed. Your body is overloaded and suffering. And that I saw a, um, I would say, uh, just my personal observation was that there were a lot of sort of pro-inflammatory conditions that were uh, diagnoses most medics wouldn't think of as being related to nutritional um, experience patients have had. We tend to think of, uh, of certain diseases as uh, just occurring uh, for people, um, but they, they didn't used to just occur 100, 200 years ago, and um, they are related to the environment that we are putting our body through today. Um, I asked some other colleagues, and I don't think I've, I've yet come across a story of a patient who I would consider genuinely healthy, uh, who was on, uh, on a COVID intensive care unit. Um, so, I used that experience to see for myself that, uh, especially if I used the pandemic as a time to uh, focus on my own health and put into practice as many of the things as, as I'd been studying and knew about and, and worked with patients on. Um, uh, I started uh, doing more weights at home with my um, stepson, and that was a great pleasure to sort of uh, you know, work out in the garden together with him. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, getting that, that sort of physical, psych, uh, psychosocial benefit from exercise and, and movement or whatever it is you're doing for health is very important. Um, but I didn't see any patient who'd had uh, any other significant health problems. Um, I noted recently, having conversations again with junior doctors, that they think that they would probably notice that at a BMI of 35 to 40, They would note uh, obesity as being relevant to the patient's admission to intensive care uh, and not a a BMI of 25 or 30. So it's got to really be quite profound before doctors start to think, oh, this obesity matters. But uh, 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 there's already a lot of things that are in process. So we might think that type 2 diabetes um, is relevant, but the process of developing type two diabetes probably takes about 10 years and you can detect changes at various stages on the way to type two diabetes. So um, if uh, um, if those changes are present, we just don't see them. Again, that, that, that doesn't mean that someone's uh, actually healthy. Um, so I felt myself, well, uh, uh, looks like I won't need the vaccine. And I actually felt that it was, uh, I had a sense of responsibility myself to to, to get the virus uh, and to develop natural immunity, um, and uh, you know, I thought to myself, "Well, you know, I've practically been been breathing." Uh, I made made some other references that probably I shouldn't say on uh, <laughs> on a podcast. Uh, you know, practically breathing COVID on a on a daily or weekly basis, um, and I thought to myself, you know, "I'm you know, almost certainly going to get exposed to it." And then I think it was around November 2021, I did an antibody test and found out that I had antibodies. Um, I'd had one brief fever earlier in the year when a friend was staying and he had COVID, but I tested negative. So I thought oh, I hadn't had it, um, but I'm pretty sure now I probably had had it and that test. It uh, didn't show that I'd had it. So I sort of came into uh, December last year thinking, well, you know, I've had uh, COVID. I'm working on an entirely COVID unit and now the government is going to fire me because I won't take a vaccine.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Red Light Rising. To find out all about the tons of benefits associated with near infrared and red light therapy, head to the link in the show notes or check out the episode with Brian and use the code HUMAN, H U M A N, to save at the checkout. Back to the podcast. I found during that time that I was hearing things that I thought, do you know what? This doesn't sound right. And it doesn't make sense. And one of the things that really got me and it, uh, I think it's a nice gesture. The intention was brilliant and, and I commend people for doing what they did, but the clapping for the NHS, for me, it didn't, it's like going to a football match and cheering for your team. <laughs> that's all you can do. Like that's all you can do. But. My thing was, how about we use this time, I'm actually going to use that time to focus even more so on my health. I mean, the majority of my wage, my, my wife's wage and our business goes into developing our health, learning more to help coach others about improving their health. And if I can maintain good health until the day I die, that's and help educate others along the way, I think that's a, something that not only takes the strain off of my immediate circle, But as a health system, I can't think of anything better to alleviate stress on a national health service than that process. And that's what got me is that we're clapping outside the front of the houses. Again, well done to those that that did it, and I commend them. But that had to be one part of the bigger puzzle. It had to be, in my opinion, we're going to do this, but equally, we're going to go back in the house, educate ourselves, not go back in the house and eat Five packs of doritos, a few tubs of ice cream, and sit in front of Netflix till midnight, and then wonder why we're then causing an undue strain in two years' time on the system, yeah, if we decide that we don't want looking look after our health now it's going to catch up, and unfortunately it's either we deal with it or someone else deals with it, and unfortunately, I think that's where it falls down to the the health system
1: yeah i mean you you, you could uh i mean. The lack of support for a health drive in the country was, for me, one of the two biggest crimes that were. Well, there's a few, a few crimes, but they were definitely up there. One of the biggest crimes that were committed um, during this whole process, you know, to limit people's exercise, um, to say that you should only go out once a day. I mean, you could have also said you must go out once a day. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, we would like you to go out and exercise in fresh air twice a day. Yeah, I mean, I would have set up outdoor exercise classes. Um, We could have funded an enormous drive for health. Uh, You could even envisage tax breaks for people whose health uh, is optimized um, because the chance of them then going forwards to uh, need health care would be less. And you could drive people to invest some of their their money and think, well, you know, I wouldn't mind having a 2% drop in my income tax um, if I can maintain certain uh, health parameters. It's never going to be perfect, but, um, you know, the whole world of taxation, healthcare isn't perfect. Um, So there was a huge... I mean, you know, why couldn't we have had uh, some other how to put it. I want to say health experts, but that's uh, always a dangerous phrase to use these days. Yeah. People that do the sort of thing that I, 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 I do, um, on the TV messaging about how to be healthy, moving towards, um, whole foods rather than processed foods. There were just, there was just so much opportunity. And I felt that you had a completely ripe, captive audience. Who, who would have just started to make those changes? And imagine if we'd supported those changes. Okay, I mean I, I would never have gone for a lockdown um, that was as lengthy as it was. I understand having a lockdown for, for two or three weeks to sort of you know get services up and running and repipe oxygen uh, into hospitals. Um, uh, and you know we were, we were completely overloaded, but to not think about and not to measure the health impact, Uh, of lockdown, Um, you know, to to put lockdown in and to uh, vaccinate vast numbers of people without control groups uh, for either of those enormous health experiments that we've we've undertaken, those are some of my other sort of top crimes.
0: Mm. So on that note, uh... (laughs) right, Um, there's a few questions that I've had over the time. And when I was reading certain statistics, I struggled to see how uh, figures in the 90% plus bracket could be pushed without the alternative. So the relative risk versus the absolute risk being discussed. Yeah. So would you be able to just explain the difference? Because I don't think people understand that there, I think most people think there was one figure and that was risk only. Not the fact that it was bracketed into two different forms and how okay. they're slightly different.
1: Yeah, so if we take the Pfizer study, which is what you're probably alluding to, there were 21,000 people who were in the placebo group, so they were given injection, didn't know what it was, but it didn't have a vaccine in it, and another 21,000, 22,000 who had uh, an injection that included the, the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, they were then followed up, and I think. At two months, if I'm if I'm not incorrect, the group who had um, uh, who had the Pfizer injection had an infection rate of 0.04%, and the group who had the placebo had an infection rate of 0.88%. So when you have that reduction from 0.88% to 0.04%, you've had a 95% reduction. Okay. Now, if you But to run and the reduction is in the occurrence of people who had symptoms consistent with COVID and tested positive for COVID. So it's not the occurrence of hospital admission or serious COVID or death, but symptoms plus positive test. Okay. The assumption is, and that was in a group of uh, healthy um, uh, adults. Okay. So, um, the relative risk reduction is from 0.88 uh, down to 0.04, uh, but as a sort of ratio of the two, so that's 95% or, you know, 19 out of 20 reduction in numbers. Um, absolute reduction is is the 0.88 minus the 0.04. Um, so that would give you a 0.7, 0.84% uh, uh, absolute reduction, which is then a, a small number. And it's that absolute reduction that gives you what we call the NNT or the number needed to treat. So if you if you see that the reduction is 0.84%, if you work out how many times you need a 0.84% to make a whole one, then you work out what the number needed to treat is. I think it's 119. So 119 people needed to have the vaccine in order that over a two-month period, one person one out of 119 of the healthy group would not test positive with symptoms consistent with COVID. Okay? Now, that shows a trend towards people not getting COVID, which is important. If you were to imagine that same group of people who were at much higher risk of COVID, you would think, okay, reducing the numbers down who get COVID will reduce the numbers who go into hospital and it will reduce the number of people who suffer and and die from COVID. And we did seem to see an impact of the vaccines on presentation uh, to hospital, although there are some potential confounders due uh, because of uh, uh, vaccine, not vaccine, um, virus uh, uh, variation over time and the fact that it may be that certain variants were picking off certain parts of the population that were susceptible to it That was an independent factor compared with uh, their susceptibility to it or their their, um, immunity and health conditions. Um, One of the problems with that study though, of course, is that um, uh, it's not relevant to uh, younger people, Um, it uh, wasn't looking at uh, any groups that 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 didn't represent. Um, And uh, when you followed up that data, so after two months, so they're supposed to keep those two groups separated for three years between the control and the non-control. Because the results were so successful, they unblinded the study and a lot of people moved um, from the uh, control group into the uh, inoculation group if you follow through by about six months, there were actually more deaths in the vaccinated group than in the unvaccinated group. So it's between 15, between 16 and 21, depending on how you count the numbers of people who died uh, in the unvaccinated group versus 15 who died in, in the vaccinated versus 15 who died in the unvaccinated group. So even with a six month follow up, there was No statistical difference in mortality, although there was a trend towards a worse outcome uh, in that group. And I think it was four or five patients had myocarditis in the vaccinated group uh, versus the unvaccinated. So one of the issues is, is does a vaccine work? Another question is, does a vaccine um, work on the disease it's intended to work on, but have negative consequences or positive consequences on the rest of your health? And if you don't follow that up, and we don't historically uh, assess um, medications for their wider impact, because it's difficult, it's difficult to to run a study um, for long enough to see a difference in outcome in in mortality. Um, But if you don't have that approach, and you take on uh, the largest medical intervention in history, and you uh, inoculate a billion people with a vaccine, you don't know from the beginning, whether it, uh, whether it improves uh, mortality or not. And that's a, a terrible position to be in because it's very hard now to know uh, what the impact is of the vaccine or not. And then there's all the aspect of um, uh, side effects. And you know, when I was sort of first thrust into the limelight, I was hearing a number of stories. Um, I'd spoken to some colleagues who were paramedics and uh, many of them had found they had some symptoms that they couldn't explain that had started since uh, they'd been vaccinated. Uh, women whose uh, menstrual cycles had changed, um, although I think lockdown in itself was probably uh, impacting uh, that, whether you'd had the vaccine or not. Um, a lot of people who were more tired uh, and different uh, odd neurological symptoms were starting to crop up. But it's difficult to know, as a doctor, especially one that's been uh, associated with questioning the need for widespread vaccination of healthy people, um, whether you're getting a a bias in the reporting that's coming towards you. Uh, And so it's just difficult to to say, well, you know, I'm being told at a 100 times the rate rate of a, a normal person about vaccine side effects, but I'm convinced now that the Rate of vaccine side effects is much larger than is being uh, widely acknowledged uh, in the mainstream media or, or by medical um, uh, bodies. Um, I also think that that's a, a particularly good reason why we should not uh, be putting vaccination for for children uh, onto the vaccine schedule, which has happened recently in the UK.
0: Mm. There's um yeah there's a, again there's quite a few things to unpack in that, and my one of my questions, and also a slightly leading question, is: Do you feel that blanket policies are introduced because because a human is so multifaceted? And equally, if someone took a mean average of the health of the nation, and they said, "Do you know what? We're going to have to give an hour per day per person to really start to educate people as into how to improve their health." Do you think, as a government, um, disregarding all of the other things that have happened uh that it's easy just to say right do you know what let's just keep it simple everyone everyone does it and we're going to say everyone's recommended to have this thing rather than "Mm, do you know what if you've got a metabolic health score that's great you've got low inflammatory markers crp markers all these other things well done you're exempt because in reality you are going to be fine but is it just easy just to say everyone gets
1: it and do you think that's why they've done it so for sure when you make public health Um, decisions, you make them on the basis of what you think the overall outcome will be, rather than what you think is is best for each individual. So if you look at vaccine schedules, um, I'm I'm not an expert on this area, but I was told and heard it from other sources that you you vaccinate um, according to when you're going to get the most uptake. So if you give vaccines in the first couple of days when um, uh, babies and mums are in hospital, their uptake is much higher than if you wait for the first month or second or third month, even though the response to the vaccine might be better, the the cumulative effect of of vaccinating a much higher percentage of patients is that more more have the vaccine and overall there's a greater benefit. So I can understand them making that kind of choice. Um, I don't think that was the only – I don't think sort of – Um, making a choice on the basis of what they think was um, the simplest message to get it across uh, was the only thing that was going there because there was a lot of sort of manipulation and and driving the mindset of the country into that viewpoint. Um, I think that uh, there was concern over experimentation um, for medics uh, and trying to work out whether any drugs could be repurposed um, and yeah, you know, there's been, there's been much hype, uh, over the years of different drugs being claimed to produce great benefit, uh, from one group or another. And then when you actually study, uh, in a more controlled environment, you find out that actually the benefit isn't really there. Um, so I think there was a lot of sort of skepticism from colleagues who were like, oh, you know, the next story about ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine and, um, we, I don't think we've done enough good studies really controlled studies in the right groups which would be those who are at home early stages of COVID and um, to say really whether these drugs work well or not um, and the sort of healthy user bias so those people who are, are have been using those medications uh, are very much likely to be actively interested in, in maintaining good health um so whether you know like someone like yourself if you use those medications how would you have been if you hadn't used them because you're already doing so many things that are driving your health in the right direction
0: i've got another friend who's a doctor and he said we were just discussing the same point and he said that yeah for a healthy individual you'll never know and it's just like when people take up a uh, you see the same from food so whether it's like um people can manipulate a diet or or group because people that end up following particular types of diet, whether it's uh, they've decided to get on a vegetarian route mm. or vegan route, uh, as an example, pescatarian, whatever it might be, they're probably more aware of their health, which is why they made the initial choice, which then leads to that healthy user bias. So, for those mm. that don't know, it's yeah, they're, they're basically a healthy individual that's taken on a specific life change. So, if you were to weigh them up against someone that has kfc five times a week i'm definitely not promoting kfc you won't find them in the sponsorship so (laughs) yeah i did i thought i'd do a joke sponsorship but you'd be open to it (laughs) if they change the whole menu we might start discussing it but yeah yeah, i mean that was one of the things for me i thought you know what let's start taking away some of the fast food but again you start challenging companies of that size and again we know how money this is what gets me a little bit Mm-hmm. When you've got huge companies with invested interest, of which there are ties to medications and the food industry, which are, is fact, we know you don't have to go far up the chain to see the link between the two.
1: Yeah. And, and then government and regulatory bodies. Of
0: course. And if you see who actually sits on these bodies and how many farmers now sit on these, it is where it used to be 50 years ago compared to where it is now, you've got a big shift from multinational corporations taking these over, as opposed to all these different farmers unions saying that this is how we want to work or associations. And this is the best thing for the planet and to regenerate land. This episode is sponsored by ape nutrition as a company that ethos to support sustainable farming methods and in to detailed nutrient dense approach really resonates with me for environmental purposes and overall human performance. To find out all about their nutritional products and to support the podcast, head to apenutrition.co.uk and use the code HUMAN, H-U-M-A-N, at the checkout to save 10%. Back to the podcast. From my limited understanding, we're dealing with thousands and thousands and thousands of viruses continuously every single day, month, of the year. And we need to make ourselves more resilient for these things because some of the things that scared me really in the last few years is witnessing close members of my family. I haven't talked about this openly because I didn't want to call anyone out, but family and friends experiencing significant diagnosed heart inflammation. And I'm not, I'm not saying the mechanism because I don't know personally, but like you said, this data is very skewed and it was a question for yourself, heart inflammation, undue fatigue, like even more fatigue than I've seen before. And then prolonged airway issues all seem to be things I have witnessed personally. Have you seen any of those things within a clinical environment or so from a personal experience? Is there anything that seems a little bit more than normal to you?
1: So I see a group of patients who've got fatigue. Um, so every patient I, I see has essentially got fatigue. So I can't say that fatigue has gone up. Gone up. I see people with a dysfunctional breeding pattern and, um, and, uh, so the picture that the sort of combat combination between fatigue and breathlessness, uh, is often what would make you susceptible, um, to COVID in the first place or be a marker for susceptibility. Um, but also that means that the bias you know, the group I'm looking at is, is, is very much presenting with a kind of, uh, long COVID esque, um, picture, shall we say. So, I can't comment that much uh, on those things. And, uh, you know, I have heard colleagues saying that they used to see something once a month. Now they're seeing it on a much more frequent basis. Um, But I'm not in the position to really make much comment on that because I can't say that that's what I've seen myself.
0: The next question really was around if people are experiencing things, I'm very aware you are a doctor, but I'm not here to try and coerce you into providing. information that's not uh subjective to that person as an individual but in your opinion are there things that could be done uh, including holistic approaches that would improve any of these things and if people are experiencing things which they think do you know what i haven't been the same since i caught covid or since i had a vaccination or since i took a certain drug are there things they can do uh, are there people they can actually talk to without feeling that they're not being heard, if that makes sense.
1: Okay, so the, the first thing to see is, well, we talked about it as growth mindset um, before, but it's whether you see things as in, in a dynamic plastic uh, state or in a fixed state. So if you think that you've had COVID and now you are forever changed by COVID, or you've had the vaccine and something has happened and you're forever changed by that, um, your ability to adapt and change gets diminished. Now I'm not saying that you know if you're if you've lost an arm in a, in a car crash you can grow it back if you think about it, um, and obviously change can be much more permanent and irreversible in in many situations. But there is a high degree of plasticity uh, in the human body and, and adaptability in the human body, which isn't recognised or isn't isn't given a central enough position uh, in the way we approach health. So the issues of fatigue for example, um, so if you, uh, if you contract a viral illness that leads you to being fatigued for a short period of time or um, you're depressed and you withdraw from society or you go into lockdown uh, and uh, aren't allowed to get out of your flat um, or um, you are vaccinated and have a, a response to the vaccine, not only do you have what's going on there, but you have a significant loss of uh, the normal stimuli that your body would be used to getting. And you start to um, you start to grey. Yeah? So there's a lot of greying going on uh, in our world. So we don't have the contrast of hot and cold um, so much yeah? because we've all got enough money to buy warm clothes and homes are heated And so our exposure to cold gets lost, uh, and we lose that ability to regulate over over hot and cold. Uh, If you become tired, uh, you're less likely to go out and be outside and see uh, natural light in the daytime. Uh, And that means that when you've expended less energy in the daytime, you're less likely to have the same uh, tiredness for sleep, and your nighttime becomes a bit more daytime like. So you're sitting watching Netflix and reading and you're a bit stressed because you don't feel very well and you're worried about, you know, the, the long-term consequences of that and you wake up during the night through stress and are then sort of, you know, in, you know on your Instagram crack account or doing something else and then you're again reducing the quality. So this contrast that we are biologically designed to have uh, gets grayed. Yeah. So if you can, so this is what I tend to work with with people on, and I think there's about sort of 15 different areas that that we could sort of run through where the body's used to contrast. And so when you reintroduce that contrast, and often people say, oh, I've been craving that, or I really know that I should do more of this or more of that. And that's usually the low hanging fruit for people's personal health uh, improvement. Um, So Start to look at those natural contrasts, which are which are which are present. Um, I mean, a couple of them. So, uh, hot and cold. We've mentioned solitude and community. Would be another uh, movement and stillness. Um, uh, slow and fast movements. Um, sleep and wakefulness. Light and dark. Um, uh, sound and uh, sound and silence. Um, using sort of uh, the green environment of nature, the blue environment of seas and waterways, um, uh, daylight exposure, morning, evening light exposure, all these different stimuli are are there. And we've got a fantastically increasing body of knowledge now that explains the actual physiological response. So... Um, uh, there's a uh, a good researcher. I think it's called Greg Potter, uh, who did a post um, uh, a couple of years ago. I've always meant to get in touch with him, uh, where he uh, wrote something about how all the things your your mum tells you have now been shown to be true, uh, uh, and he links these kind of common phrases that mum used to say uh, to to studies about you know community, be nice to people. Um, spend more time outside, uh, you know, value friendships. And uh, you know, he you know, sort of went through and listed uh what the physiology is that we now understand behind uh a, a normal healthy life. So um that's what I think people should 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 work towards um doing. Um there are probably some other practitioners like myself uh who, who work on that sort of um Basis. That's what I'm trying to introduce into the the health community that um, I've set up, uh, that people can start to get the 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 mindset, the understanding, or philosophy behind those approaches, and then make those decisions for themselves rather than having everything prescribed.
0: Of course, uh, contrasts are huge. I, I love the way that's that you've portrayed that because we, for example, if we pick exercise, it's either. Um, Uh, and especially if it's a high-intensity type exercise, high weight, high-intensity, low rest, if all of these things are up, then you've got a case for injury or illness. If these things are too low, there's no stimulus or stimuli. So by having the contrast, you allow um, this rest, and stimulate, rest, stimulate. And it's something I learned years ago as well. I was following um, the TACFIT system, and Scott Sonnen was always talking about neurological weave so in training you'd have this no low medium high perspective so you'd build up and then you'd come back down and you start again no low medium high no low medium high and that's that's how the weave went and rather than thinking of muscle groups it was more about how fatigued am I am I allowing myself the space and you said space earlier and I love anything around the idea of creating space because without space things can't move and I think that's really important because what happens we're bombarded with information. And sometimes we just need someone to say, do you know what, here's a bit of space and I just want you to work on this one thing, just one thing. And that's the, the beauty of having a mentor of which I think is starting to come back in, in some ways, but for, for many years, it's been very much the whole follow what governing bodies have said, or follow what this is, is doing. Instead of actually having someone there, uh, having a teacher, and like you mentioned, Gabo Maté, I love his work. I mean, I've listened to him extensively over the years, especially during the last two years. And it, again, he's another voice, which I would highly recommend to people to listen to, because you've only got to search for his name and you'll hear an untold amount of podcasts
1: involving him. And... Yeah, except he's made a few comments on people who take vaccine, people who refuse vaccines. But, um, I'd I'd like to quiz him on some point. <laughs> okay.
0: I mean... I mean, that's, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that as well. I mean, I'm very keen to state that I support, and um, as I'm sure you do as a, as a doctor, I support everyone regardless of their choices. And I was always of the opinion that that was the main thing that frustrated me was that I believe as a, as a coach of any sort um, like yourself, that you're there to create the space to help people develop regardless of their opinions. And if they're different to yours, it's okay that's fine. We're here to throw out ideas based on what we think and what we've learned up until now. And if, like we said, if we change, we change. So be it. And I think that's the only way we develop by throwing all these things out and saying, well, what do you think? What do you think? I mean, I've spent years in the military. I was just being barked at, told what to do, but we were always told to think for ourselves after training went through. It was like, right, guys, you need to start thinking for yourselves. And if you've got a better idea than your boss, pitch Mm -hmm. it. Let's see if we can come up with a better thing because it's life or death then. But that's where I struggled in the last few years is that people's voices in some parts of society were saying, accept everyone for everything, Mm -hmm. which is great. But on other parts of society, we're saying, shut up if your idea is different and don't say anything and keep yourself to yourself because you're not supposed to talk about this. It needs to be more towards the first side, in my opinion we've got these things we need to talk, but ultimately there needs to be a decision made. I get that as well. We can't just be airy fairy about these things and throw every idea out because it's like in a team, if for someone's creative, someone's very, someone else has to be very direct and say, we need to do this or otherwise nothing gets done. So, so I can appreciate that. But I was always of the opinion we're in this together and let's help each other. Let's help each other develop using these methods because that's what we're here for in my opinion. Mm.
1: Yeah, so, you know, with, with the mental side of things, um, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for people, um, taking on and learning, um, uh, not both a widespread approach to health, but also that sort of health ownership, uh, aspect, uh, and that it shouldn't be too orientated towards one individual, um, that that individual should be seeking to make people independent as soon as they can. Um, uh. And then we've got this sort of question about, you know, accepting every everyone for for whatever they are. Uh, I mean, but, but basically, uh, you know, why would we disagree with with that, but it shouldn't be the uh, uh, all states will work as well for, for everybody. Um, and the question is whether whether that state uh, is working for that human being. Um, and so you know, we tend to sort of look at the label and say, well, someone can, you know, I'm expressing that I'm like this or, or that, but, you know, does, does that approach allow people, um, uh, to, to be healthy and to thrive? Um, and for that, you need to tune into what's going on behind. So we, we talk, uh, sometimes there's this phrase, you know, root cause, uh, for health Um, And I think that uh, the sort of first step I made with my sort of uh, health education was to to look at root causes for problems. But what I think is also missing from that is what's the root cause of the root cause. Um, So why do you make the health choices that then lead to the problem? So why do you um, uh, choose to eat processed foods that say, uh, you know, on a regular basis. So that once people shift and understand, or well, there's, you know, do you just shift or do you underst- do you understand why you should change? Yeah. And why did you choose something in the first place? So what was it? So when you get given information, so I've got clients I'm working with at the moment, uh, uh set up his own business, first person in his family to do that sort of thing. Um, And uh, he's had sort of stick from some members of his family for uh, not being a manual worker, because there's a history in his family of being a manual worker. Um, And so he has a sort of uh, feeling of a little bit of guilt about doing things um, and succeeding, uh, because there's that sort of negative association. So when he wants to make a change towards his health, uh, you know, I've worked with him now on, you know, giving himself permission for that, because what he developed as a child as a protective mechanism of feeling a bit guilty about, you know, um, doing good things for himself, or, um, uh, or working with his, his, um, a cerebral approach to, you know, the concept of being healthier, rather than just going to the pub all the time. Yeah. um. You know, so he needs to understand what the shift is he needs to make, so that he can implement those changes. Um, so, as uh, I, I like looking now back with with clients at uh, what those um, unrecognized beliefs are behind the choices they're making.
0: Does that come from a point of reference for yourself, Steve? So, for example, have you been through things like that in the past where you feel like the You've maybe self-medicated through training or, um, other forms of, or even like too much meditation. I, I don't know if we can, <laughs> <laughs> cause I think all of us have, I know I have a hundred percent. I I've tried to numb myself by overtraining to the point of feeling so fatigued. I don't want to think about these things anymore. And I think we all need to be aware of these patterns in ourselves.
1: So I wouldn't say I've, I've been caught by too much training. Um, uh, <laughs> I did a did a half marathon a couple of years ago and trained with two five k runs and a twelve k, um, and, <laughs> and, uh, and suffered the consequences the days afterwards. Yeah. Um, so no, I I, uh, I have definitely spent more time sitting on a cushion than than uh, lifting weights in the last twenty odd years. Um, that's certainly shifted now. Um, uh, I where I'm caught is that uh, I, I I can still see that I'm looking for the outer world um, changes uh, in order to improve the situation. And I know that I have to come back time and time again to uh, being content with the situation I'm in, appreciating what's going on, uh, not being caught with my Hopes and expectations right now because they can destroy a perfectly good moment. And when you destroy a perfectly good moment uh, 20 times in the day, you have a miserable day rather than a great day. Um, so for me, that's the, you know, the, the, uh, I've maybe shifted that psychology of uh, I'm going to be a doctor who can look after the sickest patients for most complicated operations. Um, uh, and therefore I managed to prove myself as a a worthy human being who can study and deliver uh, high-quality care to, uh, well, I'll do that now in a more holistic uh, sort of health biology uh, approach and um, promote uh, this approach towards health. So again, I'm still proving uh, myself as a human being thinking I'm trying to prove it to other people, but probably trying to prove it to myself, uh, which is then the question is why you're doing that. So why do you need that validation? Why are you uh, looking for validation more than others? What's your background where you, uh, you know, validation, uh, through outer achievement became your way of uh, achieving security. It's interesting.
0: So last couple of questions one of which follows on from that is that the inspiration that drove you to become a doctor in the initial stages does that still exist from an almost like an intensity or energetic standpoint and has it shifted somewhat because of what you've done and learned over the years and time in buddhism um so does that passion still exist but is it slightly different
1: so, um, it's changed. Um, I would say that, uh, as I was in medical school and early stages of training, uh, I felt that, um, I was fairly uncomfortable with Western medicines, uh, offer as far as chronic disease management went. Um, but the extremes of care, so critical care, um, cardiac surgery or other sort of major surgeries, um, uh, probably emergency department care, those sorts of things, I felt that Western Medicine had a had a very valid uh, offer for people, so I felt comfortable in that area. Um, uh, but that also removed me from that sort of slow process of uh, outpatients and, and ward rounds, uh, which I found to be too slow uh, for, for me personally and a bit boring. Uh, now I uh, really gravitate towards those uh, slower human interactions and uh, really like to get to know the client over many weeks with you know spending usually an hour with people at a time uh, and developing that deeper sort of history with people and relationship with people. So it's changed in that sense. I think that what I want to do could um, probably... Um, I was going to say I wouldn't necessarily need to be qualified as a doctor which, which might be a useful thing if I get myself into any more trouble um, why not keep it going so uh, I don't really intend to stop doing what I've done so far Yeah, of course. Um, cool. so who, who knows but you know there are um, you know 20 topics that I've used my knowledge as a doctor and sort of uh, training in physiology to, to be able to get a fairly rapid uh, handle on and then apply those uh, to patients who've often got, um, I mean, I've seen seen a lot of people who've got sort of what are called functional uh, health issues. So meaning that some other doctor have seen them and couldn't, couldn't find something wrong, but there clearly is. And often that's because you don't apply the right test to be able to find out what is limiting a patient or how limited they are. Um, so a lot of things I do are uh, less standard from um, medicine or could be done by someone with a, a good uh, science and um, uh, human or psychology background. Um, and I yeah, I do wonder whether, over time, I might try to set up a, a health education course for, for, for medics or, or medical students or, or, or just write a sort of how to be healthy book. Um, I, I, I wrote a sort of five-pager uh, text uh, a few years ago that I sent out to some friends that covered the sort of basics of these different um, these different pillars. And uh, I can see myself going in and, and doing something a bit deeper there.
0: I think that'd be really good because of your, your background and how you've been integrated into the system for a long time. So you've seen both sides and to have that unique experience within Buddhism um, and time on the cushion, which for anyone who doesn't understand that, literally sat on a cushion on the floor um or whatever it might be and still stillness is is the key factor there and i always saw it as still body busy mind and then busy body still mind and that's what people default to i think the challenge is trying to move to the stillness with both if you can get to both when you're static that's the real challenge and i'm not by any means saying i i need a few more thousand hours on on the cushion myself to to start working towards that but I think that unique approach as a, as a doctor would really open people's mind, and because you've already got the foot in the door as well. I think so many people like chiropractors. I know have been standing on the outside for years, saying, "Hey, we're over here. Uh, is anyone going to recommend anyone to us, or or we've we've just got to go private all the time and get try and drive people in that way?" And I've seen huge differences from osteos, chiropractors, um, body workers, uh, all, all of these different approaches. And yeah. I think think it's so important in the system because it makes it multifaceted. You've got a multifaceted approach to a multifaceted organism. And I think when we deal with people in that manner, we're looking at every single aperture or through every single aperture as opposed to just saying symptom A, pill B, and that's it. Um, Yeah. Because it makes sense.
1: You know, we've had had benefit from um, super specialization within medicine so that you've got people who are very skilled at handling, um, very narrow, disease, uh, presentations and you, you'll and generally, in general, you'll improve outcomes for people. Um, when you've got a specialist uh, dealing with the problem, but that tends to mean that the more specialized people become the less of a generalist they are by, by the nature of things. And, um, you know, general practitioners, uh, because, of the way healthcare has been taught, the way the system is set up now, uh, they simply do not have the time, even those who've got the education uh, in this sort of viewpoint, they don't have the time to be able to uh, deliver this kind of healthcare. And I do think we need to um, shift the model as society. Um, I do think that there needs to be a sort of um, uh, free to access uh, education system for for all people, um, which could potentially guide them towards certain certain practices or exercises if they've presented with certain things. So, you know, if I take my sort of top twenty approaches, and then I would say, well, if I got a patient with anxiety, I'd probably move them into this direction. I'd check that on their nutrition they were trying this or that, and uh, you know, psychological would would go down this sort of route. So. There's so many different um, ways that we could start to deliver more care. Um, You know, my hope is that uh, with the the Health Awakening um, community, that people will see that you can take a lot of people who've actually had quite significant chronic health problems um, and connect them together and with the right information and improve their health. And if we can scale that up um, then why shouldn't we have a local health community, uh, in each neighborhood, uh, with people? So, that, you know, your GP can say, look, you know, why don't you plug into, uh, our, our CCGs or So our, you know, our, uh, areas, uh, online health community. Yeah. And then you've then got a trained practitioner, uh, who's familiar with these different approaches who's supporting, you know, one or 2,000 people who want to improve their health and it wouldn't cost cost a lot to to set up. So if you've got any um, CCG directors out there, (laughs) get get in touch with it.
0: Put a call out. Um, Yeah, I I totally agree because I've been working on a project the last year and we were working with people that were dealing with chronic bladder issues and all of them seem to stem from a form of trauma or, or anxiety. Uh, I'd say probably 95% of people, maybe even more mm-hmm. that were undisclosed. And by implementing movement breath work um, and changing people's perspective of how they view the world and getting outside more with the community, uh, we had 100% positive feedback originally. We had an 80-year-old, sorry, 84-year-old lady who came off her meds, again, using talking to her doctor and they were monitoring her and she came mm-hmm. off and that's the first time in 25 years. And it was just about saying we're here, we're supporting you. And start doing these things daily. Start with one minute. I think when we talk about people can perceive these contrasts as all or nothing. But I definitely say that one step forwards is better than none. Mm. So if you're taking a step towards it, we say with a cold shower, I'm sure you guys say the same thing. It's you start hot and then you just literally strap into cold and back off again. Well done. One second. Tomorrow, two seconds, three seconds, until it becomes a habit. And once the habit's formed, Things become so much easier. Um, I've got one question to finish on. I finish on this with every single person, and I'm sure we've covered it already within this. And I'm just going to narrow it down because I always try and give people a few things to focus on. But it's a two-part question because uh, Steve, you're quite unique in in your journey, and I feel it deserves the second question or second part. So to finish every podcast. I am keen to leave the listeners with some simple routines that they can adopt and apply on a daily basis. What principles would be at the top of your list to form the foundations of human health, or in other words, a human first approach?
1: Okay. So top of the list. So the first thing would have to be the a mindset um, about understanding that your body is uh, adaptive and that uh, when you give it the right stimuli, um, uh, it will respond and it will be healthier. That most of the chronic health problems we see in society today are the result of our environment and the nutrition that we take from it and uh, the movement and behaviors that we have, that they weren't there uh, some hundred years ago. And if you think from a sort of ancestral health mindset as to what uh, someone, you know, 500 years ago or a thousand years ago might have done in society. Uh, you'll have the framework for an awful lot of health choices. So that would be the first thing on the sort of a psychological and mindset level. The second thing, uh, then on a sort of daily practical uh, side of things, um, would have to be early morning light exposure and uh, time outside, uh, ideally in nature. Um, I think that. That's just connecting for people in, in many ways. It's giving them the right stimuli for their brain to know uh, when day is and therefore when night is. Uh, that if you set your circadian rhythm up well, um, your digestive system is going to work better um, and uh, you're going to sleep better and you're more refreshed. And then the choices you'll make the next day are improved. And so there's just sort of so many benefits on, on that level. Um, and then the third thing I'd have to say is um, caution uh, the presentation of health information, which is counter to a historical basis and that is um, associated with uh, people making money. Uh, and the one area I would highlight there most of all is the vegetarian, vegan, plant based uh, movement. Um, which doesn't have a long-standing historical basis of success uh, in our society or indeed in other societies of of optimizing health. Um, A fairly small percentage of people in this country uh, are are vegetarian or vegan, um, but about 80 or 90% of the people who came to my clinic uh, for fatigue uh, were vegetarian. If you're vegetarian or vegan, you need to pay close attention to the nutrient intake Um, So take a course, um, start to calculate your protein intake. Um, A lot of people feel better the first couple of years on that kind of approach, but five or 10 years down the line, it's very easy for nutrient deficiencies to accumulate. Um, You need to eat a lot more calories uh, on a vegetarian or vegan diet in order to gain the uh, nutrients that you need. So uh, you've got to be careful from that aspect. Um, because the density of foods is lower, um, and, uh, meat products, uh, on their own, the, the data about the negative impact of meat, uh, like you alluded to earlier is often associated with other health behaviors. So there's a real difference between someone who eats, uh, a, a grass fed ribeye, um, uh, every meal of their, uh, their life to someone who eats uh, McDonald's. Uh, Every day of their life. So, you don't distinguish that in in health recorded data about how often you eat meat. Um, So, you know, meat on itself is is a therapeutic.
0: Brilliant. That's uh, some good points I think people can start to adopt. And even if it's something that is counter to people's belief, I I always suggest that people do their research and just look into things and, and go into things with an open mind. I was always told, pick pick classes and pick things that challenge your beliefs because that's where you really start to learn and you say is this my bias or is it the truth and the more we can pick away at that the better and i think that fits in nicely to this last question Mm. what has buddhism or time within that that framework time on the cushion um what has that provided for you and what do you think that you could provide to others based on your experience from that learning process?
1: Uh, I'm fortunate in my health and energy levels and ability to um, work and do the activities uh, I want to do. Uh, I rarely feel limited Uh, in my ability to go out and do what I want to do Um, uh, I'm making more space and making more changes to be not just going out to do things in order to done and achieve but to simply uh, be doing uh, spending more time um, being restful or uh, sitting in the garden for half an hour this morning with a coffee and not doing anything else other than that um, and creating that direction. Um, and again, it's it's unfortunately a multi-staged approach that my brain has kind of <laughs> convinced me of, but accepting uh, the situation you're in, um, uh, allowing yourself to, to give the energy towards change, but this um acceptance of how things are, even when you want things to be different, to still accept them for the way they are um, and try to support uh, and be thankful to yourself for what you've done and um, uh, how you might be able to support others um, and to, to try to move away from that level of expectation mm-hmm. that is what frustrates an awful lot of things. Um, so that's how I kind of See it. I, I, I see um, health improvement as a window for people um, to get them out of the the chains of of, of suffering from ill health. Um, mainly as a step towards uh, further investigation of their their mind um, and where they are. Um, I've got a lot of friends who have started working with. Um, psychedelics and uh, that's a very interesting field I hope that that, there'll be the research that's being done on that will become uh, uh, well that there'll be successful outcomes for those things uh, and the ability to work with plant medicine for people I think is is potentially quite profound um, alongside you know uh, meditation or other techniques um, because there's really a difference between wearing a pair of shoes and carpeting the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And once you know how to wear a pair of shoes, you'll never think about trying to carpet the world again.
0: I love that. Yeah. That's, uh, that's going to be added to my daily reflections. I think that last comment, Uh, Dr. Steve James, thank you so much for joining me today. And it's been an absolute pleasure again. I just want to say thank you again for being open, honest and yourself over the, this last period, especially in the last six months uh, in the public eye because I do believe that your experience and everything we've learned about today, or those that didn't know more about you, I think it makes sense now uh, as to why you felt being honest and open was important at that time. And I think that, mm. again, we come back to that concept of space. I think it allowed the space to open, the doors to open for other people to express how they felt and their thoughts. And that in itself, I think, is to be commended. So must be appreciated that thank you thanks there. thank you all the
1: best all the best
0: thank you for joining dr steve james and myself on this episode regardless of your views and beliefs i just want to express my gratitude and say thank you for listening to this even if it doesn't adhere to your own views i feel it's important to be able to truly listen and make personal decisions as we're all very different but we must stick together regardless of what challenges are thrown at us to enable us to thrive on the road ahead Please support the podcast by checking out our sponsors and I will see you on the next episode.